everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to episode seven of the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. I hope everyone out there is doing well. We've been away for a few weeks on vacations and the like, but now we're back and excited to have lots of new episodes coming your way. On this episode, which we're calling Dear Evo, we attempt to answer some of the questions we've received from you, our listeners. We may try to do this every once in a while for topics that may not require an entire podcast, but are still very important questions, questions you may have always wanted to ask. Today in the Evo studio, we've got the full team here, myself, Dave, Lisa, and our intern, Cecilia. Cecilia did a lot of the work in organizing this episode and even got to run the Q&A portion of the episode. I think she did a great job, and maybe after my job next, I guess we'll see. I decided to surprise her and put her on the spot for this week's Evo 5 and think she did a great job. However, like most guests we've had, she didn't successfully guess the name that tune question, which was maybe not as obvious a reference to her getting ready to head back to college as I may have thought, but let's see if you get the connection. Anyway, I'm thinking I may have to make those music questions a little easier since we've only had one guest actually guess it correctly. Maybe the bar is just a little too high and uh, we got to lower it a little bit. So we'll give it a try next week. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Podbean and we're even on Spotify now too. We love feedback and questions, hence the reason for this episode. Uh, So drop us a line at evo5podcast at gmail.com Or send us a message on Twitter or Instagram, and you can find us at EvoFi Podcast. All right, remember our good old-fashioned disclaimer that I have to read every time? Well, here goes. This podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and maybe a little fun, too. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help. With that said, here's the EvoFi team with our very first Dear Evo episode. Enjoy. Hey everybody, it's raining again. I think it's still. When's the snow? When's the snow coming? Yeah, let's not hope for it a doesn't. Little while. Yeah, yeah, it might. Hopefully not. Yeah. What else is going on? Everybody's excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we're talking about the weather, so you know that's always a good start that's to a true. conversation. We have yeah. had a break. Next, for a we'll talk while. about directions. Like, you know, we've you know, all been on vacation, so to speak. Yes, we have. Because this is uh, we're coming back from our summer break to the episode seven of the podcast. So it's been like so exciting. It's been too long. Yeah. We're all refreshed. How's everybody doing out there? I'm looking at the microphone. We missed you. They can't answer back. I know. <laughs> All right. So we've got with us Cecilia Fleming today. And of course, Lisa Spinnick as usual and Dave O'Brien. And since Cecilia is heading back to Virginia Tech in the near future, uh, I thought I would make her or we thought we would make her the Evo 5 uh, guest of the day. She's looking at me like, oh, man. <laughs> I thought you were going to do it. So, okay. For those of you who don't know what the Evo 5 are, there are five questions that we ask of all guests. And since the guests are ourselves in the Dear Evo episode, 
our dear friend Cecilia, who is parting us soon, gets to be that person. All right. So, and the cool thing is, is I'm adding some new questions this year. Oh, gosh. All right. So here we go. Got to get to my script. If the average human lifespan was 40 years, how would you live your life differently? That's a great question. Recognize you're only halfway there. That's Whereas very I'd true. be dead. Very true. 40 years. That's short. That's quick. I think I'd travel and spend time with family. I think that's kind of a typical answer, but that's probably what I would do. So this, this might be a good follow-up question then. Sure. If you had to move to any state or country besides the one you live in, where would you go and why? Probably, I'd love to say Chicago, but that's not a state. So I'm not sure that I'd like the whole state of Illinois. I like Chicago. The state of but, Chicago. Right. I would say I'm Montana. I've Montana. seen pictures I've never been, but okay. I've always wanted to go out there and... Find a cowboy. Yeah. Okay. See the mountains. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> that may feel like a different country for some people, too. <laughs> Maybe. What is something you know that you do differently than most people? That's a great question. Well, we were actually just talking about it. I don't watch movies. What? I really? can't. How come? I Is can't that too sit personal to ask? For, no, oh, no, no. You don't sit still. I can't sit for... I can sit still, but I can't sit to watch a movie. I feel like i You I'm, can move in a movie theater. And especially you if you're watching at home. You can get up and walk around you while can. the movie's going on. Just, but you can't you can be productive. Pause it. No. Productive. And I think I can't do You anything. can multitask. Okay. That's, That's what true. we That's like a, out of an intern, yeah. isn't it? I don't even have time for a movie. i got to no be productive. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm still going to go back to that first question about if the average... Because as a... You know, financial planning student, I would think that you'd ask what the standard deviation was on that. But anyway, just saying. <laughs> wow. I'm not that much of a nerd. I am. <laughs> nice. All right. So here's a familiar question. I have to ask this of everybody. Greatest of all time. You can pick one in business, in sport, in entertainment. Well, you probably don't know entertainment because you've got no time for that. But maybe music. Well, who's your goat? Music. My goat would be Michael Jackson. Nice. Yeah. Anything in particular about Michael Jackson? Just his whole style and vibe song. and everything he brought to the table. I don't think anyone's ever going to be able to replicate that. I like I Michael. What, uh, so Michael Jackson's song. What's the favorite Michael Jackson song? Ooh. Mine's PYT. It's <laughs> groovy. Probably Billie Jean. Okay. Yeah. I heard something about Billie Jean. Did you hear that he stole the bass line off that song from, uh, who was it? I've heard that before and I can't remember uh, either. Boom, 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 boom. What is it? Uh, we'll have to do that in the viewer show mail. notes. Anybody out there yeah. listening, you can. That, but I'll, I'll say it in the middle us. of the in the middle of the episode. Okay, okay finally, okay. name that tune. This okay. is kind of it. Kind of made us think about when you go back to school, and so I'm only going to play 14 seconds of this song. Okay. No words. Okay. We're going to test you here. Okay. That's it? That's it. I've heard it before, and I'm not sure. Bonus points if you know the album. Gosh, I'm not sure. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Dave, I'll give it to you this time. Clash, should I stay or go? Or should I go? Should I I stay or should I go? You heard of The Clash? that's good, yeah. And the album? Combat Rock? I don't know, actually. I think so. Okay, good. Penny was hitting me on the shoulder. No, that was not Bon Jovi. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get started. So the goal today is we call this the Dear Evo uh, episode, which is, you know, we'll call it reader mail or listener mail on some of the questions that we've gotten over time. And 
for those loyal listeners who listened to the pilot, you'll realize that we kind of did this up front, but we really just got stuck on the fiduciary word and didn't really get past that. So our goal today is to make this a little bit more practical and a little bit more digestible nuggets on specific questions we've got around financial planning topics. And so I'm going to turn it over here to Cecilia and to Lisa, and they're going to they're going to fire the questions away, and uh, they're going to try try and keep Dave and I honest, and then anybody else who wants to add answers to, and we'll go from there. So let's have some fun with it and uh, keep the questions coming. So awesome. go for it. Great. One question that I hear a lot of people ask, even um, just in passing, talking to people or even coming in, my mother recently passed or my parent recently passed. Hypothetically. I, hypothetically, okay. correct. And I inherited a large sum of money. What should I do with it? Go ahead, Dave. I don't know. Go, go to Vegas. I mean, I wouldn't get Montana with it, but it'll uh. last a long time. So um, on a serious note, I mean, so there's so many directions this can go based on, you know, the, the context. But if you just inherit a large sum of cash, what should you do with it? Well, you need to take a look at your own personal financial circumstances. Do you pay off some debt? You know, do you, you know, if you're already in really great financial straits, uh, then this is potentially money that you want to apply towards future goals in your life, whether you have children, whether they've gone to college or not, retirement, things like that. Maybe you don't need the money at all, and maybe it's more for um, charitable giving. So the first thing that you need to do is take a, a good look at your current financial situation. Don't do anything quickly. Um, one thing that a fiduciary financial planner can do is help you through that process of providing kind of an objective view of where you are today and how this fits into where you are now, where you want to go, what you want for your family, what you want for the world. Um, you need to also take into account taxes. Uh, you need to take into account uh, the way that that money was inherited. Perhaps you have inherited stocks and bonds, mutual funds from your mom, and uh, those all have a step up in cost basis, which gets a little bit more complex. But if you hold on to them for too long, then you start accruing some capital gains. You need to say, hey, it was mom's portfolio the right portfolio for me? So all of these things kind of tie into what do you want in the future and what do you need to do today? And the one thing that you don't need to do is spend it too quickly or invest it too quickly or trust people who want you to do that. Okay. And one thing that Dave said, if I can just add on to that, that we kind of went through really fast, which was I like to tell people initially do nothing. I think what Dave said was don't be in a rush to do anything. But in the beginning, you know, we've both worked with folks who have gone through something like that. And it can be a very traumatic experience up front just with the loss of the loved one and people always feel like well gosh I have all this stuff and I got to get all this done immediately and we haven't even had the funeral yet and do nothing there's there's nothing that can't wait for you to process what's happened so and then some of the stuff that Dave mentioned or frankly all of the stuff that Dave mentioned that will all come but I think the best advice is, is don't do anything especially something that will lock you into a, a bad decision or be hustled into anything because there's time to grieve first. So I have one question. Um, should I know what a step up in cost basis is? I mean, I don't know what that is or how. Can someone help me with that? That's a great question. So let's just say that your mom bought that money back in um, or bought that stock back in 1965 and GE's gone up a lot or IBM's gone up a lot. If she sold it, she would 
have a tax on the difference between what she paid for it and what she sells it for. Um, but if your mom died last week, now you inherit the value of that date of death. And the tax rules get a little bit more tricky, but basically that's what a step up is. It means that all of those gains that your mom accrued are not taxable to you, generally. Always need to say generally because right. there is nothing that's always the same in tax world. Does it work the same for losses? It does work the same for losses. So if your mom had purchased a stock back in the 70s or back in the 90s and it's down today, you inherit the value today. And those losses can't be used to offset other gains. Does her estate, does anybody pay the gains? No. Oh. Although, if I can add this, I did see something in the news about their they, the people in Washington are talking about modifying the, the cost basis rule, which allows, gosh, I wish I remember what it was, but it's for people, you get an inflation-adjusted cost basis, not at death, but let's say that you invested a half million dollars. Let's make it simple. Let's say you invested a million dollars, and it grew to two million. Your capital gain is a million dollars, um, and you bought that, paid a million dollars 10 years ago, and inflation was 4%. Well, the cost basis would go up to a million forty, then a million eighty million. So your cost basis will actually be adjusted up based on inflation, and that's something they've been tossing around. Which I'm not sure it makes sense to me, but that may be something that happens, at least until the next Congress gets in and changes everything. Not having anything to do with if mom died and now it's yours, but if mom's alive, that might be something under a future tax law that comes yes. along. Yes. Yes. So. All right, so let's let's keep it rolling. That's does good good discussion. I want to stop for a second as well, Dave. You mentioned a fiduciary financial planner could help with that. How can you find a fiduciary financial planner? Or how do you find the best fit? So, uh, where do you find a fiduciary? Sure. Um, there are a few sources. Uh, Napfa.org, N-A-P-F-A.org, has a find an advisor tool where you can find someone who has taken a fiduciary oath and is fee only and who does real financial planning. Uh, there's the Garrett Network. Uh, there's the CFP Board. There's the ACA website. Um, there are a few sources where you can go to look. I think the important thing is, what is a fiduciary? Good question. <laughs> uh, I was hoping I was going to get the Evo 5. That's my favorite word. It's a really simple term. And a fiduciary duty is uh, to do solely what is in the interest solely what is in the best interest of the other. It's essentially, if your mom just came back and said, hey, I just filed, a, I just hired a financial planner, what would you want to know to make sure that that person was treating your mom the way that she should be treated, the way that you would want her treated? I'm assuming you and your mom have a good relationship. So that's what a fiduciary is. It's somebody okay. who's doing only what's best for you, uh -huh. regardless of what it means for their compensation. And then you said, you said compensation, and I don't want to get too far down on the weeds here, you can listen to the pilot episode, but compensation, you mentioned fee only. We see a lot of people who say, no, I'm working with a fee-based advisor. And, you know, fee only basically means is you are only compensated by the advisor. There is no third party, no insurance company, no investment company also paying the advisor. Fee-based kind of sounds like fee only, but it's not. And as Dave will tell you, and he's taught me well that Commission and fees, is that the right way to say it, is the new fee-based? If, if you're working with a CFP practitioner, Certified Financial Planner uh, Certificant, uh, they may not use the term fee-based. 
that is stricken. And they must use the term fees and commissions, which means they will charge you fees and or they will charge you commissions. If you're working with somebody who is fee only, it means fee only all the time. They and their employer and any related parties are only receiving fees that they charge the client directly that must be transparent and known. And I saw one of these today, actually. So family had a fee-based advisor, and so they were paying 1% kind of to manage the assets, and then they were C-shares. So there was a 1.5% load plus there's was there a five-year trail? Or just to interject, a C-share is a type of a mutual fund that charges a lot more okay. uh, than you could pay for that same mutual fund if you bought it from somebody else. Great. Even better. Yep. Awesome. So wait, I have... Sure. Sorry. And I know you don't want to get in the weeds, but real quickly, you talked about NAPFA, Garrett, and ACA. Can you just point me in the direction and give me a one-sentence, two-sentence, what the heck? So the Garrett Network and the uh, Alliance of Comprehensive Advisors are uh, kind of similar and allied uh, professional associations to NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Uh, We have over 3,000 NAPFA members, all of whom are CFP practitioners and fiduciary advisors who are fee-only. The CFP board represents a significantly larger number of CFP practitioners who follow different business models, including fee-only. Thanks. That's really helpful. Appreciate that. And something I found on those as well is you can put a filter on finding an advisor. So if you have a specific need, you can find a female advisor. You can find someone that specializes in the specific thing that you need. So I think that's pretty cool that you can search for a specific advisor if need be. And there's a, for those of you who are multimedia fans and if you've heard of this thing called YouTube, I don't know if it's going to stay around, but <laughs> there's there's a spot on, from John Oliver. He's a comedian. He did a spot on fiduciaries and 401k specifically in this case, but it applies. So if you want to learn more about how the outside looks at this difference, you can watch that. Uh, it's pretty fun. It is. Do right. I need to um, choose a an advisor who is in my area? Is that a requirement? No, no, no. You need to find somebody who's right for you. And if you're comfortable working with somebody in a virtual manner, there are planners who might be in Montana who could work with somebody in Virginia. There are planners who are in Virginia who work with people all across the country. We certainly do. And uh, really, it's about having that right match. Uh, unlike, you know, going to uh, you know somebody to cut your hair, your physical therapist, they don't need to physically be near you. They don't have to be authorized to do business in Montana. If you are a registered investment advisory firm, which all NAPFA members are uh, in an RIA firm uh, or owners of their own RIA firm, uh, whether you are state registered or registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, you can provide financial planning services in all 50 states. Oh, that's great to know. And Montana. (laughs) So there's somebody out there in Montana who's going, yo, come on. Not Cecilia, though. Well, we'll stop picking on Montana. Yeah, sorry. Awesome. So another question as well. I need help tracking our monthly finances. Should I consult a financial planner? Well, so that's a good question. And I always that's how I always start off when someone asks a question, whether it's good or bad. That's a good delay tactic. Yeah. too. <laughs> it gives me time to think. But well, so the answer, it depends. I mean, if, if someone is having a hard time tracking their finances, and they can't do it themselves, then yes, they should find a professional. Let's think about what does professional mean? Um, you can go to a credit counselor or something if you're having problems with debt specifically. A broker is probably not the right place to go because their their job is to sell you 
investments, which you may not be able to afford. So a financial planner is a good alternative because they look at things, um, I would say, comprehensively. And often cash flow is one of the first things that we talk about. And there are financial planners who really certified sure. financial planners who uh, do specialize in cash flow and budgeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the filter criteria that you can select for when you're looking for a planner, and that's their specialty. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like we were talking about yesterday with accounting when you're in college. It's like a fundamental skill you have to have is accounting is debits and credits. And to me, if you can't understand cash flow and budgeting as a financial planner, um, then it's probably not the right business for you. So anybody can help you, but there are different services tailored for different levels of, of, that, um, of that work. Okay. Along another note, what is a robo-advisor? Can they do the monthly budgeting? Can you explain them? Dave, you want to take that one first and I'll add to it. So yeah, the term robo-advisor has been pretty popular in the past year, maybe two years. Uh, What they are, are um, online uh, services that will manage your investments uh, for a fee. And uh, essentially, they will put your investments in a certain model, uh, in certain funds that they select, and it's all online, electronic, computerized, uh, not a whole lot of customization. Um, often, they may not be able to manage your employer's retirement plan, you know, your 401k or your 403b. Um, and generally, you don't have a person to talk to. So that's the traditional view of what a robo-advisor is. Um, they kind of sprung from the tools that we, as registered investment advisory firms, have been using for years. Um, you know, here at Evolution Advisors, we use the tools that the robo advisors use and apply uh, human judgment uh, as well as a wide range of services. So then, in between, you know, you've got a high touch, high service firm like ours. You have a low or no touch, very narrow service like a robo advisor. Uh, in between those, uh, some companies have kind of stepped forward with kind of a hybrid model. Vanguard offers one. And uh, for some individuals uh, who don't have a significant number of accounts, don't have a very complex situation, and don't want financial planning, that might be an appropriate approach for them. Yeah, and I think in my own head, I just came up with a new term, and you guys probably won't think it's funny, but Dave kind of laid out the different levels of service, so a robo-advisor may fit for someone who doesn't have great planning needs. Then you've got the fee-only kind of approach where it's a bigger picture, where there's more customization. And then on the other side, because people have come to us before, what I'm going to call the nobo-advisors, which is based, nobo-advisors, which is there's no advisor, there's no robo. You go to Vanguard's website, you invest your money. It's not automated, but it's just there. And some people, that is totally fine. If you're just trying to get started, you know, you're not paying the 40 basis points and, or whatever, 0.4% per year that the robo-advisor charges. And you're certainly not paying for, you know, a full-fledged fee-only advisor to, you know, to provide planning at a higher level. But there are several people who just need to get their money started. And that means they may not even need a robo-advisor. So we'll call them no-bo-advisors. So if I use a robo-advisor... And I have questions about um, my insurance or my estate or my parents' estate and my inheritance. How does that work? They're not going to provide you with advice. Uh, the you know, traditional robo-advisor model is, I just inherited $40,000 from my mom. It's all I got, and I don't care about any of this stuff. I just want to know that it's not sitting in a bank account, that it's invested. And I'll go through an online questionnaire 
and it says you need to be invested somewhat aggressively and they'll just take it. I'll send them a check and they're going to invest it. They're going to manage it and I'm going to be able to view my statement on my iPhone every day. Now, if you want all of those additional services and, you know, for example, helping settle your mom's estate, uh, figuring out, you know, your own cash flow, maybe you need some term life insurance and need some help shopping for that, need to make sure that you've got, you know, you're appropriately insured for your home, your auto. Um, if you have an employer that offers benefits, somebody to help kind of walk through all of those documents and say, here's what's going to be best for you and help you make a good choice, that's where you need to work with an individual. And whether that's somebody virtually or that's somebody who's at the table right across from you, that's a registered investment advisory firm, which means they are a fiduciary as opposed to a brokerage firm or an insurance agent. And I would want to work with a certified financial planner, which shows that they've got uh, you know, at least three years of experience, that they've got the education, that they've passed an exam, and they need to continue doing continued education. And then take it up a step, and you work with a fee-only fiduciary, knowing that they're not going to sell you anything. They're just providing you with advice. So there are kind of a few levels there, based on the level of complexity, and also the level of time and interest that you have to do it yourself. So if I'm so if I'm uh, someone who's looking for an advisor, I am completely overwhelmed now. So now you're telling me there's fee only, there's commission and fees, and then within that fee only, I've got like four different kinds. And we meet with people. Find a fee only advisor. Find somebody who's a certified financial planner that's fee only. They're a fiduciary. Nafidadorg is a quick, easy way to find them. Or call us. Good. Great. Great. Now, when you say manage, will they rebalance as well? The robo-advisor? Yes. They do. That's the thing that's really great about them. And what is rebalancing? Rebalancing is, let's say you should be 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds. And over a year, like last year, stocks do pretty well. You're not 60% in stocks anymore. They've grown. They're now like 70, 73% of your portfolio. That's more risk than you can afford or maybe than you know, your, your stomach can afford. They're going to sell back down to 60% of stocks and they're going to buy bonds. That's what rebalancing is. Okay. And when should you rebalance? Wow. You should do it when you become out of balance. Uh, we use a tolerance range that's academically supported to be the most efficient way to do it. But at least once a year, take a look at your portfolio and make sure that you're not out of balance. Well, and, and what supports that is the kind of the, the, the assumption that when you're out of balance is because things have gotten too high. So you're effectively selling high and then you're buying things that are theoretically low. Which is so hard for people to do. Right. It's but like it, what you're supposed to do, but right. why would I sell the things that are going well? Right. But, but do that, I have to ask my advisor? I mean, how do I know when to rebalance? Do I have to say, hey, um, it's time to rebalance or how would you I You have know? to ask. No, I'm just kidding. That is a great There's question. There's different though. philosophies. Yeah. I mean, uh, we automatically rebalance for our clients because we have discretionary authority to trade as long as we stay within the lines of something called an investment policy statement. But uh, some, some firms uh, want to get permission from their client. And then there are others who don't do the portfolio management at all. So it's really back to... There are a lot of different choices out there, right? And it depends, you know, for each of us as consumers of these services, we have to say, well, how much time and energy do we want to put into this? And if you want to delegate a lot, then you want a firm that's going to take care of it for you. That's a good question to ask. Are you going to rebalance my portfolio for me so I can kind of let you deal with it? Or if you're somebody who really is interested in doing it yourself, 
then the question is, are you going to review with me what I should be doing? And then I go do it. And that's the, it's all about just asking really good questions, being really clear about what are you going to do? What are you not going to do? And what do I need to do? And that is that investment policy statement. Is that something that I have to provide to you or what? Um, if, if, if a person walks in with an investment policy statement, then they're probably really ahead of the game. Uh, and IPS, as we call them, is really a, you know, it sounds fancy, right? But it's a letter to your future self, which says, look, I'm a 60-40 or a 70-30 or whatever. Here's the way that my investments should be invested, because that's what I'm comfortable with now here when I'm thinking rationally and calmly and, and looking at the fact that, you know, stocks and bonds go up and down over time. We're going to have a recession at some point. Um, but throughout all of that, this allocation is right for me, and I'm not going to take you know, crazy action like sell everything and go to cash, or I'm not going to say, hey, Apple just had a trillion dollars in market cap. Let's buy some of that. So that's really what an investment policy statement is. This is here's what I want to do. And when times get rough yeah. or times get overheated, pull it out and get your feet back on the ground. And it's a, and more specifically, it is a, it's an agreement between you and the advisor on how this is going to work. So I like the idea of it being a letter to your future self, but it's also a, a very high-level agreement on how this is going to work. Uh, and so, hey, I was thinking here, because of the time, which I want to keep rolling, sure. you have any, like, cool, like, specific planning questions on instances maybe that we I can highlight? All of those were cool planning questions. I know they were, but <laughs> but I, I want to get into the work. It's really, really sexy. Yeah, I we actually had a question that I thought was, it's probably, in my opinion, the most interesting question. The person asked, my spouse recently passed away and took the lead role in most of our finances. I know a bit of information, but not nearly as much as my spouse did. What next? And I think that happens often. I think that happens often where one one spouse or one client kind of takes the lead role yep. and yep. the other, they're just left in the dust. So so is this, is this question about... Um, what actually happens, like literally after you're just alone with the survivor, and where do you go first? Is that where we're going? I want to make sure I answer the right question. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think that's okay. Yes. That's so we kind of talked about that a little bit up front, which is essentially nothing. I don't mean nothing, but don't make any rash financial decisions. Um, and like I said, we both got instances where we can talk about this, and they're somewhat different. But um, I think you have to just take time to be human first, and to just let them know that whatever they need that you can be here for. And in our case, or in my case specifically, this happened a few years back and um, the person that I was working with didn't even know how to balance a checkbook. And so it started a bit, a bit remedial, but we literally had to get a check register and start baby steps, you know, and a couple of years later, she's got a check register like online and she's got it all figured out and, you know, she's got a budget and, you know, but you really have to start in small chunks and just realize that, Money sometimes, even though it creates a lot of fear, could be the furthest from their mind. Another thing Dave mentioned too is, you know, looking at debt. So a lot of times there's a lot of outstanding debt. So you want to make sure you kind of look at what's the good debt, what's the bad debt, what do we want to keep, uh, and try to make, um, figure out what the big strategic decisions are that need to be made immediately. And sometimes not paying off that mortgage initially is an okay idea. Um, the best thing I can say is, again, just take it slow. You know, um, let people grieve, and then uh, everything else will follow suit. Dave, what do you want to? So add to you're that? that individual who's just, um, you know, been handed the biggest tragedy in your life, and now you're alone. 
Um, there are a couple things that I think are really important. One is um, make sure that the bills were paid. And it might be good that point. you need to bring somebody in. You might need to bring a, a really good friend or a trusted family member in just to, to make sure. Uh, you need to ask, do we have an estate attorney, right? Did you, do you have a will or did your spouse have a will uh, and other documents? And if so, then you call that lawyer. Do you work with a CPA? Do you work with a certified financial planner or do you work with like a broker? Uh, that individual or those individuals also need to be notified. And now you have a team of people who should be able to coordinate their activities for you. The attorney is going to help settle um, all of the things that need to be settled uh, from a legal standpoint. Uh, most of the time, certainly here in Virginia, the surviving spouse is generally the one to inherit everything, and there are, there are no taxes generally associated with that. Um, but there are some complications if there are trusts and so forth. So you need to just reach out to the professionals who currently support you. One thing that I have seen is sometimes that uh, the, the recently departed spouse had a relationship with um, you know, the money and the person who managed the money, and the surviving spouse finds that that person that manages the money uh, is going to come in and start saying, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. And as I said earlier, do nothing, and as John just said, do nothing is probably a really important thing to remember because although most people who uh, are in some type of financial services job are ethical, there are a few out there who will see a great opportunity to sell everything and make some big commissions. So be careful about taking any steps too quickly and... Um, Generally, if you're not comfortable with these decisions, have you know a, a good friend or a loved one who knows more about this area than you do in the meetings with you. Another thing that came up recently that I've never really thought about is that in this case, we'll just say the husband was the, was the one who handled the finances and he's the one who passed away and he's the one who had the relationship with the advisor or broker. I found recently that the surviving spouse, in this case the wife, almost sees these, the advisor that her husband worked with as an extension of the husband. And there's, it's, it's really difficult to, to, to not immediately want to stay with that person because that is a link to her husband and what, something that he was very, very interested in. So there's some intangible things, too, that go with, um, you know, with that that you don't think about. And that's something that I've encountered just recently. But uh, it's a very strong bond, and um, that takes time to unwind. Eventually they come to and they'll realize, but... That, that could be around for a while, too. Now, we were talking about after a significant event. Is Do you have any advice on kind of how to get ahead of that? Um, no one knows when anything's going to happen, obviously. But maybe if you had a piece of advice that somehow clients could use or someone could use. I have a story. Everybody likes stories. I have stories. Once upon a time, <laughs> there was a client and an advisor. Just kidding. So it, 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 I'll start with the advice, and then I'll kind of get into a quick story. So the best thing you could do is is get your stuff together, get it in order now. Even if you're in your 30s, I don't need to do estate planning. Well, everybody has to have beneficiaries on their accounts. If you have children, you have to have basic wills that say, what happens if something happens to my children? In this I'm sorry. Correct. Thank you, Dave. Minor detail, but yes, what happens if something happens to me? But in this case, there's an example of a story I had where the beneficiary, so the, the husband and wife had, or in this case, it was just um, just a husband, had uh, 
an IRA, 401k, but there were no beneficiaries on it. And I think he was, there was no uh, wife. And the, the IRA went to the estate because there was no named beneficiary on the IRA. And there were young children. And so what the IRA had to be liquidated within the estate and they had to pay tax 20 or 30% on that money. And then it still got passed to the children. Whereas had it been named, had the beneficiaries been the children, they would have gotten it outright with no tax. And so right off the bat, if it was a million bucks, now it's 600000 maybe seven hundred, uh, And it had to be liquidated immediately to, to close out the estate, whereas the kids could have gotten all a million dollars. All for simply just not putting a name down as a beneficiary. So that's an easy thing that everybody should do. Bank accounts, insurance, uh, investment accounts. Yep, that's a really important one that I see a lot of people don't think about is uh, – on your IRAs and your employer retirement accounts, make sure you have a beneficiary and make sure that the beneficiary is still who you want. You don't want it to be your first spouse, which you know you haven't married in 20 years. Um, the second is if you don't have a will, go to an attorney who specializes in that type of work and can provide you with advice so that you have a will, as well as some other documents that are going to be important. But the, the bigger thing, too, for... Um, for a couple, how do you prepare for this, is um, talk about this. I think it's uh, ordinarily uh, a topic people don't want to discuss. It's not very fun. So don't talk about dying. Talk about, hey, here's what we have. Here's what we're doing, just so that you know. Um, it's really important. When you, both of you, referred to get all your documents together, can you be more specific about those documents that I should get together? Legal documents? Well, any document. Yeah. Your stuff, get your stuff, get your together. stuff together. Let's uh, let's let's kind of walk through it. Let's start with the uh, legal documents. So, you need a will. You need uh, powers of attorney that allow somebody else to be you if you're not able to do so. A power of attorney for medical decisions. Uh, also a living will, which is if you are uh, incapacitated and you're not going to survive uh, that, that extends your wishes. Now let's talk about your stuff, your assets and your liabilities. You need to have written down, here are my bank accounts, here are my investment accounts, here's where they are, here are my liabilities, you know, my credit cards, auto, mortgage, um, insurance, my home and auto, my liability, my life insurance, if you have employee benefits that come with that, your disability income, your long-term care insurance. Now let's take a look at John, my Facebook password, my tw- all my social media, assets. my digital assets. I was listening to a podcast recently about that, and that's a whole other world. And nothing like getting a, a Facebook post from someone who's been has passed away. And that's a real big deal. And mm-hmm. I've learned that each of these social media sites has their own policies now where if you're the executor, you can call in and you can you can continue an account as a legacy account, or you can cancel it. So there's a whole other realm now. Amazon, pa- I mean, there's, it's crazy if you think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll give a reference uh, or a resource that everybody out there can use that's free. It's from the American Institute for Economic Research, A-I-E-R. If you go to Sounds their website fun. or you Google the A-I-E-R, if something should happen. That's the name of this booklet that they produce, and it's free to the public, and it's a fillable PDF, and it literally takes you through all of these things, including here's the name of my vet, here's the kennel that my dog goes to, here are the medications that they have, all the things that are really important that people tend not to think about. And it's an important thing for families 
to and single people to have somebody else who knows all the stuff in your head. So, so I need to have all my legal documents together, my bank accounts, insurance. Does that cover everything? I'd say if it's something that you own, make sure it has a secondary home. Own or owe. Yeah. Or go. can access. Yeah. And all of your tax um, information, such as here are the taxes that I owe for the year, here are the taxes that I have paid for the year, if you're making estimated quarterly taxes, if you work with a CPA or tax preparer, that mm-hmm. information is also something that's important there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good okay. question. Yeah. All right. So what else we got? Reader mail. I want to point out really quickly, I think sometimes the wishes are the most important thing with finances aside. That's probably the worst thing to have to go through is not knowing what what that the person, person wanted, wanted. Mm-hmm. right? And yeah. from personal experience, it adds on to all the grief and fear of the future and everything. I think it's it's so much better to have that if something should happen. Mm-hmm. Being able to read, this is what they wanted, and being content with what you're doing, knowing that that's what they wanted. So it's a difficult topic. I mean, we've worked with people who are all about that. They want to come in here, and there's no taboo subject. It's like you know what, I'm I'm gonna be dead soon. And my, I don't care if he has life insurance on me because he's got a job and I don't care and he doesn't care. But then there are others who find it very, very difficult to talk about. So I understand this is a difficult topic to, to, to come up with or to talk about. But if you're a planner, it doesn't have to be about the end. It can be about, um, you know, right now. Absolutely. Now, another question we had, someone had asked, I'm in my late seventies and beginning to wonder about long-term care. When I go to a specialist, they say I need a policy. How do I know if I need a policy? That's a great, I'm going to have David, I'm just kidding. What insurance agent hasn't said you need more insurance? You know, has anybody seen those commission tables? But yeah, to be fair, in the defensive insurance people, there are some really good insurance people out there and their job is to be an expert on that. And we always say that insurance is a tool um, and sometimes you don't need that tool. Um, You know, if you need a flathead, you don't need a Phillips head screwdriver if that's uh, how you want to think about it. But... um, you know, you want to think about, well, first of all, let's talk about, I don't want to get into long-term care too much. If you like, want to learn more about that, you can check out episode one uh, where we have a, a long-term care expert in here. But um, the, the concept of long-term care is there is at some point in my life, I may have not be able to take care of myself or my spouse may not be able to take care of me. And you have to pay someone to do that, whether they come into your house or whether you go live somewhere else. And so a lot of times people can't relate to that expense because they're not spending it today. They have a lifestyle. So as planners, we have to help them understand what, what kind of costs are out there. And there are a couple different options. One is you can, we call self-insure, meaning if you have enough money saved up, you may not need insurance because you can afford what may come your way. Uh, on the complete opposite end is you can buy uh, a, an insurance policy that essentially um, pays for long-term care costs in the future should you need them. Now, in most cases, it's a use it or lose it. So you're effectively going to pay premiums, just like you would for life insurance. You're going to pay premiums to know that you have a certain amount of coverage in the future. Now, those premiums, just like auto insurance, if you never have a claim, they may go. They may just be wasted premiums, but it's that safety net. Uh, we were working with someone recently, and we found that we kind of did both. We said, you know, it was important from a, an intangible standpoint to have some safety net in terms of uh, if there was a catastrophic event for long-term care. So we, we helped her find some coverage, a, a baseline coverage for long-term care insurance at a reasonable premium. Uh, but then we also knew that her financial plan could withstand uh, 
a certain amount of cash out of pocket. But once we knew what that max cash out of pocket was and we knew we could insure the rest of it, then it was a good balance. So I think most people would tell you that they don't want to burden their family when that happens. And there's certainly a financial burden, and this would address that. Uh, but there's an emotional burden too, and that's a whole uh, separate topic we can discuss later. But a lot of times, you know, you bring a caregiver in and it helps the emotional, uh, you know, you don't have family members taking care of you. I just go back to that question, though, because if you're in your late 70s and you're thinking now about uh, long-term care insurance, you need, well, you actually, so, so you need to, yeah, one, yeah. assess. I over-answered. Yeah. You're right. How, what, how likely is it that you may need it? Well, going to be more likely. How, um, what's the impact the financial impact, back to John's point, maybe you already have enough money that you can self-insure $100,000 in expenses a year on top of your current expenses, although you might not be traveling or buying a new car. And then you have to look at how much this policy is going to cost and if a carrier is actually going to issue it to you because of your age. Yeah. And so it gets a little harder. The right age to be thinking about long-term care insurance is when you're healthy and you're younger and the likelihood from an insurance company standpoint is pretty low. So they're going, be collecting, age, they're going to be collecting premiums for decades and not paying out, probably. So it's when you're in your late 50s is when you probably need to think about it. Yeah. Cecilia, did you do that on purpose? Did you throw late 70s in there on no, purpose? Because I was not thinking. I totally missed that. But yeah, yeah. By that point, it's probably too late for insurance. It's probably too late. That's yeah. true. Probably yeah. too late. That's true. Maybe we have time for maybe, a, do you have any, like a last Sure. I actually zinger? have one more interesting one I want to okay. sneak in. Just one more. Just one. Let's do it. Why don't I hear my financial advisor talk about day-to-day -day changes in the market? I thought that was extremely interesting in the news, on the TV, in the paper. That's all they talk about. Because they're a good advisor? I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, Dave, you, you can answer that first. In all seriousness, I'll let you go first and I'll, I'll follow. So if the market goes up or down on any given day, is that news? No. Most of the folks who are talking about what your investments do day-to-day either don't have a lot of other stuff to talk about or they're trading in your portfolio based on what they think is going to happen next. And I don't know about anybody listening here, but I haven't met anybody who's very good at predicting the future all the time. So we don't talk about what the market's doing on a daily basis because it really doesn't matter for a long-term investor. And this sounds dry and dull, but it, but it's true. If you need your money, your savings to last for decades, for 30, 40 years, 50 years, what it does today or this month or this year really doesn't matter. In fact, if it's down and you're saving, you're buying on sale. If it's up and you're buying, okay, you pay a little bit more, but is the market never going to get higher than it is today? Probably not. Probably will get higher than it is today. <laughs> so really, in, in the big picture, it just doesn't matter. And that's why most of the fiduciaries out there aren't really looking at what the market's doing every day. So it's not news to us. It might be interesting or it might be distracting. But I'd say if you want excitement, go to Vegas. If you want something <laughs> you know, like a really uh, prudent investment portfolio, it should be like watching grass grow. I always like to say oh it's boring. Boring yeah. is good. And I have to say, though, that, you know, you watch a lot of the commercials out there and, and, and people are, it's kind of like Vegas. People always believe that they can beat the house. And that's why Vegas is the most gaudy, opulent city in the world, maybe out of, outside of, you know. Montana? Uh, Montana. I'm never going to live I was down. thinking, yeah. But, you know, so, so there will always be people out there who can claim that they can, they know more than, than the average bear. Um, but in that, that gets people uh, interested, but ultimately they, they 
find out that no, they weren't, they're not getting what they were, uh, what they were told. And they end up coming back because they find that boring is okay. And sometimes you have to have that experience first, but, but yeah, I agree with Dave. It should be, it should be boring and you should understand why. And, you know, but we live in a world of, you know, instantaneous news. And so it's impossible to not acknowledge, oh my gosh, this happened today. What is, what is it doing to my investments? And it's all over. So you, you'd not be human. If, if that didn't affect you in some way, but you have to maintain some perspective and it's not always easy. Yeah, absolutely. Any last minute stories, pieces of advice, examples? Last minute zingers, Lisa? Um, I'm good. I have a lot to think about. That's really helpful. Penny, any zingers? Penny's our producer over here telling me, telling us to wrap it up. All right. <laughs> well, we'll so I, I think overall, uh, this was good. I think let's let's maybe do one of these every, you know, 10 episodes or something. Just continue to get the feedback. And if I have a question. Mm-hmm. If I have a Yes, thank you. Good question. Um, so if you're out there listening to us already, chances are you're already subscribed. But if you're not, um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, podbean.com, or Spotify. And if you have questions, you can email us at evofipodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at evo5podcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to see what our office looks like, you can go to Instagram and check out what all of us look like. Anyway, we want to thank Cecilia. She did a great job. Thanks for having me. She'll be back at Virginia Tech and uh, back in Montana after that. <laughs> so We'll see. We hope you all have a good, good week, and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks' time. Bye.